Part 1, Chapter 5 of Canada's Hundred Days with the Canadian Corps from Amiens to Meaux, August 8, November 11, 1918. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Sławek Księżycki Canada's Hundred Days by John Lifesay Part 1, Chapter 5 Operations, August 8 The impressions of an onlooker recorded above are of a rather confused scene. The rough and tumble of battle, where but a fraction of the canvas comes under the eye and no just estimation can be formed of the picture as a whole. In reality, it has been all worked out beforehand, in minutest detail, and every piece falls into its place almost automatically. The plan and course of the first day's operations can be best followed in the words of the Corps commander. The front of attack was to extend from Moray to Ville-sur-Ancre, on a front of approximately 20,000 yards. The dispositions of the troops participating in the battle were as follows. A. On the right, from Moray to Ten, inclusive. The first French army under orders of Commander-in-Chief British Army. B. In the center, from Ten, exclusive, to the amiens Schul Railway, the Canadian Corps. C. On the left from the amiens Schul Railway to the Somme, the Australian Corps. D. The left flank of the Australian Corps was covered by the 3rd British Corps attacking in the direction of Morlacourt. The object of the attack was to push forward in the direction of the line roy Schulm, with the least possible delay, thrusting the enemy back in the general direction of Am, and so facilitating the operations of the French on the front between Mont-Didier and Noyon. The French on our left were not to attack until our movement had been well advanced. The battlefront of the Canadian Corps exceeded 8,500 yards in a straight line from a point about half a mile southwest of Hoogs to the Amiens-Schulm railway, crossing the Luis River about half a mile north of Hoogs and then trending in a northerly direction west of Angar through the western edge of Angar wood to east of Cachy whence it swung off to the northeast, joining the Australian line on the railway just east of villers boitony For the purpose of the operation, the following units were placed under the Canadian Corps commander. 3rd Cavalry Division, including the Canadian Cavalry Brigade, 4th Tank Brigade and 5th Squadron Royal Air Force. A mobile force was organized consisting of the 1st, 
and 2nd Canadian Motor Machine Gun Brigades, the Canadian Corps Cyclist Battalion, and a section of 6-inch Newton mortars mounted on motor lorries. This force was named the Canadian Independent Force, placed under command of Brigadier General R. Brutiniel, and given the task of cooperating with the cavalry in the neighborhood of the Amiens-Roy Road, covering the right flank of our right division and maintaining liaison with the French. I was notified, continues Sir Arthur Curie, that two British divisions were held in army reserve and could be made available in the event of certain situations developing. The total artillery at my disposal amounted to 17 brigades of field artillery and 9 brigades of heavy artillery plus 4 additional batteries of long-range guns. The Canadian Corps was disposed as follows. On the right, the 3rd Canadian Division, Major General L. J. Lipset, in liaison with the French. In the center, the 1st Canadian Division, Major General A. C. MacDonnell. On the left, the 2nd Canadian Division, Major General Sir Henry E. Burstall, in liaison with the Australians. In reserve, behind the 3rd Canadian Division, the 4th Canadian Division, Major General Sir David Watson. The Australian Corps Lieutenant General Sir J. Monash had two divisions in line. The 2nd Division on the right, in liaison with our 2nd Division, and the 3rd Australian Division on the left, resting on the south bank of the Somme, with the 5th and 4th Australian Divisions in support. North of the Somme, the 3rd British Corps had the 58th and 18th Divisions in line, and the 12th Division in support. It may be explained here that in recording all dispositions, objectives and the line held, it is the practice to name units as from the right flank, on the south in the present case, to the left, or north. The objectives of the Canadian Corps for the first day were 1. The green line just east of the line Amon Wood, Courcelles, Marcel-Cave, Lamotte and Saint-Terre, north of the Amiens-Roy railway. 2. The red line just east of Mezières Mision, Blanche Camp, Vermont Farm, and the high ground east of Guillacourt on the Amiens Schul Railway. 3. The blue line comprising the outer defenses of Amiens, which run east of the line Angest, Gisnel, Quai, Arbonnières. The latter was not intended as the final objective for the day, and the cavalry was to exploit beyond it, if possible. The average depth of penetration necessary to capture the blue line was 14,000 yards. The ground was very difficult, most of our forward area consisting of bare slopes exposed to enemy observation from the high ground south of the Lewis River, and east of Hours. On our right, the Lewis River 
and its marshes from two to three hundred yards in width provided an obstacle impossible to troops. Here, the only practicable access to the jumping-off line was by the bridge and road from Domach to Hochs, a narrow defile about two hundred yards long, commanded throughout by the high ground immediately to the east, and especially from Dodu and Moray woods. These conditions rendered the assembly of troops prior to the attack very difficult. Some distance west of our front line, woods, villages and sunken roads gave a certain amount of cover in the preparatory stage, and in Jontel Wood, space was found for tanks as well as troops. Opposite our front, says Sir Arthur Curie, the ground consisted of a rolling plateau cut diagonally by the deep valley of the River Luis. This river flows almost due west through a strip of wooded marshland some 300 yards wide, from which the sides of the valley rise steeply. Numerous ravines, generally running north and south, cut deep into the plateau, the ground between these ravines forming, as it were, tactical features difficult of access and more or less intersupporting. Woods and copses are scattered over the area, and many compact and well-built villages, surrounded by gardens and orchards, formed conspicuous landmarks. The remainder was open, unfenced farmland, partly covered with fields of standing grain. The hostile defences consisted chiefly of unconnected elements of trenches and a vast number of machine-gun posts scattered here and there, forming a very loose but very deep pattern. Our intelligence had reported that the enemy had 24 battalions, less than three divisions, in the forward area, and about six battalions in support, the latter belonging to divisions of the French front, but known to be situated within the area we were to attack. It was believed that the enemy had four divisions in reserve immediately available, and that two of these were west of Indenbure line. The Canadian Corps commander outlines the battle plan as follows. The general scheme of attack was to overrun rapidly the enemy's forward area to a depth of about 3,600 yards under cover of a dense artillery barrage which would begin at zero hour. Then, without halting to seize the red line, relying on the help of tanks to overcome the machine-gun defenses. At that moment, the cavalry was to pass through the infantry and seize the area so far as the blue line, supported on its right flank by the Canadian Independent Force. The cavalry was to be followed as quickly as possible by the 4th Canadian Division, passing through the 3rd Canadian Division on the right, and by reserve brigades of the 1st and 2nd Canadian Divisions in the center and on the left. Every effort was to be made to exploit success wherever it occurred. 
special arrangements had been made to support the attack beyond the green line as long as possible with heavy artillery and sections of field artillery were detailed to advance in close support of the attacking infantry the attack had been synchronized with the australians who were to jump off at the same hour as the canadian corps the first french army was to submit the bois de moraille to a forty-five minute bombardment before developing infantry action but the general officer commanding had agreed that the bombardment should only begin at zero hour the canadian corps being as it were the spearhead of the attack the movements of other formations were to be synchronized with ours it will be seen from the above that a great deal depended upon the artillery and before detailing the work of the infantry it will be well to give some little account of this triumph of scientific gunnery between six and seven hundred guns were massed on the canadian corps front and the bar rage laid down was the greatest of the war to date far exceeding that at vim ridge in the first place the difficulties attending the accumulation of all kinds of ammunition for the operation in such a short space of time were very great the nearest army dump from which our gunners could draw ammunition was so far away that lorries could not make more than one trip a day advance refilling points had not been selected and the dumping of ammunition at these points did not really begin until august three there was a great shortage of lorries a considerable number of the heavy artillery brigades imperial arriving only two or three days before the attack when the lorries of these brigades became available there was not sufficient petrol to keep them in operation it may be said in parenthesis that there was a shortage of petrol throughout this operation the canadian independent force in particular being put out of action for a considerable time from this cause add to this the fact that all traffic had to go over two roads the amiens roy road and the amiens villers bointier road the latter being also used for australian supply and the general congestion can be realized nevertheless though only after incredible exertions many lorries running continuously for forty-eight and even sixty hours a great quantity of ammunition was gathered together six hundred rounds per gun being available great credit is due the administrative branches of the canadian corps of whom the deputy adjutant and quartermaster general brick general g j farmer was an imperial officer of outstanding talent and energy the barrage would have been wonderful if the ground had been known and prepared and every feature of the artillery problem carefully studied out in advance it was nothing less than marvelous when the facts are taken into account that many of the batteries were only brought up a few hours before the engagement opened 
that it was impossible for them to expose their presence by any attempt at registration and that the barrage had to be plotted out entirely from maps and by triangulation the guns were in dormant batteries unregistered and without permanent emplacements when zero hour struck it was a triumph for canadian gunnery five days only were available for preparation and great credit is due the general officer commanding major general e w b morrison his staff and divisional brigade and battery commanders with their rank and file the canadian divisional artillery commanders were as follows first brigadier general h c thacker second brigadier general h a panet third brigadier general j s stewart fourth brigadier general w b m king and fifth brigadier general w o h dots great credit is also due the imperial and canadian heavy artillery brigadier general r h massey whose counter-battery work was so magnificent that the enemy artillery was smothered and we overran many batteries that never got into action and whose crews were deep in dug-outs much of the credit for this was due the corps counter-battery officer lieutenant colonel a g l mcnaughton and his staff sir arthur curie describes the first day's operations in the following terms at four twenty a m august eight the initial assault was delivered on the entire army front of attack and the first french army opened their bombardment the attack made satisfactory progress from the outset on the whole front east of hoogs opposite the third canadian division the high ground which dominated our front and a portion of the french front had been seized quickly by the ninth canadian infantry brigade brigadier general d m ormond and the way was opened for the canadian independent force and the fourth canadian division the very complete arrangements made by the third canadian division to keep the bridge open and to repair the road completely allowed the reserves to go forward without delay the heavy task of the canadian engineers was remarkably well carried out by the afternoon the canadian corps had gained all its objectives with the exception of a few hundred yards on the right in the vicinity of lee kisnell where stiff resistance was offered by unexpected reserves but this was made good the following morning the day's operations in which the four canadian divisions took part represented a maximum penetration of the enemy's defenses of over eight miles and included the capture of the following villages angar demien boucouard aucouard courcel inyecourt kelly quai marceclave 
Viencourt, Le Quipieux, and Guilcourt. In addition to these, the independent force assisted the French in the capture of Mesireux, which was holding up their advance. The surprise had been complete and overwhelming. The prisoners stated that they had no idea that an attack was impending, and captured documents did not indicate that any of our preparations had been detected. An officer stated that the Canadians were believed to be on the Kemel front. It will be interesting to reproduce here the following extract from Sir Douglas Haig's victory dispatch. At 4.20 a.m. on August 8, our massed artillery opened intense fire on the whole front of attack, completely crushing the enemy's batteries, some of which never succeeded in coming into action. Simultaneously, British infantry and tanks advanced to the assault. The enemy was taken completely by surprise, and under cover of a heavy ground mist, our first objectives on the line Demouillon, Marcelclaf, Cerzy, south of Marlancourt, were gained rapidly. After a halt of two hours on this line by the leading troops, infantry, cavalry, and light tanks passed through and continued the advance, the different arms working in cooperation in a most admirable manner. At the close of the day's operation, our troops had completed an advance of between six and seven miles. The Amiens outer defense line, including the villages of Quai, Armienaire, and Morcourt, had been gained on the whole front of attack, except at Le Quisnel itself. Cavalry and armored cars were in action well to the east of this line, and before dawn on August 9, Le Quisnel also had been taken. North of the Somme, the enemy was more alert as the result of the recent engagements in this sector, and succeeded by heavy fighting in maintaining himself for the time being in the village of Chepilly. East of the line of our advance, the enemy at nightfall was blowing up dumps in all directions, while his transport and limbers were streaming eastwards towards the Somme, offering excellent targets to our airmen who made full use of their opportunities. Over 13,000 prisoners, between 300 and 400 guns, and vast quantities of ammunition and stores of all kinds remained in our possession. The brilliant and predominating part taken by the Canadian and Australian corps in this battle is worthy of the highest commendation. The skill and determination of these troops proved irresistible and at all points met with rapid and complete success. End of Part 1, Chapter 5 Recording by Sławek Księżycki